This is Journey Church Podcast. Here at Journey, we believe in encountering God and embracing people. From wherever you're listening, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Give me the grace and the ability this morning to deliver your word by your power. Would you bring to life what we need to hear so that we will be transformed? We will not walk out of this place the same. We cannot because of your precious word that is life-changing. And so, Lord, to you alone belongs all the honor and the glory, the power and the majesty. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Pastor Jess had asked me some time ago if I would um, speak in the summer series, the verse that changed my life. And I went to prayer, obviously, right away, because you know what? There's a whole bunch of scripture that means so much to me and is so significant in my life. And I didn't know which one I should pick, if I'm really honest. The one that the Holy Spirit kept bringing up over and over again, however, was a scripture verse that I don't think I would have picked, (laughs) if I were honest. But this is the verse that God kept bringing back over and over and over again. And as he did, he reminded me of why that verse was so particularly pivotal in my life. It happened a long time ago. But it came back consistently over and over again, and this is it. Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God. You do not despise. This was a verse that was significant. I've been raised in the church all my life. I went to Sunday school, Sunday morning service, Sunday evening service when they had them. Wednesday night, we went to a girls' club called Missionettes, kind of like brownies or guides. And on Friday nights, I went to youth. I had an amazing church life, amazing upbringing in the church. I was very fortunate to have this. Sunday school picnics, church luncheons, Christmas concerts, summer camps, sword drills. Anybody know sword drills? Yes, right? That's how I learned the books of the Bible, almost all of them except Habakkuk. That one's hard. (laughs) But all of this encompassed my life, and I'm so grateful for that life experience. I grew up in a community that was like my extended family. But let me be clear, that did not mean that my faith, my relationship with God was personal and that I had made Jesus Lord of my life until this season of brokenness. You see, the brokenness that I experienced came at a time Uh, when my home church, my secure place, my extended family went through a church split. I don't know if you've ever been through one, but it can be really ugly, very painful. And it was shattering to me, and thus began my disillusionment. And from this moment on, I began to question many things. I felt like I was on shaky ground with my faith, so I went to Bible college. I know, not a typical solution. Um, because I thought, well, I missed, missed something. I needed some more theology, so I'm going to go to Bible college. So I went for a year. And I'm telling you, if I could be really honest, that the scripture became like a textbook to me. It was not the beloved word of God. It was weighty. And at this time in my life, I couldn't carry it. It was not what I knew the word of God could be. And slowly in my discontent, I began that slippery slope of compromise. And I made choices I'm not proud of. And these choices led to confusion about myself. Who was I? What did I believe? 
I was obviously weak. I remember thinking I'd never be good enough, smart enough, talented enough, miserable failure. Boy, doesn't the enemy just work on our negative thinking, right? He's just building blocks, and he builds his concrete wall, and we stand behind it and think that's the truth. It is not. So ironically, don't laugh, but this is the truth. I went to the Word of God. I did. It was the only thing I really knew how to do, but I'm telling you what the difference was this time is that I prayed desperately. God, show up. Help me see you. What did I miss? And I searched the scriptures relentlessly on my knees, weeping. And this verse showed up. <laughs> a broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. I'm telling you, these words struck my heart like a bolt of lightning, flooded my heart with pounding hope, and I just began to realize, hey, I might not be a lost cause after all. God saw me in my brokenness, and he did not despise me. He did not reject me. Now, you need to understand, I did not, you know, I know I went to Bible college for a year, but I really didn't understand the context of this scripture, if I'm honest. I didn't have a hermeneutical interpretation but there it is an undeniable thing that happened to me because the love of God, the hope, penetrated my heart to the place where I literally said, your love amazes me, God. And I surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and I have not looked back. Brokenness, you can't live in this world you can't even be alive and not experience brokenness. No one wants to be broken. If you were to Google brokenness or what the Google might say about brokenness, it says things about everything. You're going to find a lot. And you've probably heard messages about brokenness and how you can grow through adversity, that brokenness can enable you to understand and walk with someone that has also experienced that same brokenness. That is true. Brokenness can make you a better person if you allow it to. But I suspect that inwardly, we believe that brokenness is a negative thing. It certainly is a failure if we can't get past it. It is a state you want to avoid. It carries shame. I mean, we live in a culture in hard pursuit after happiness, and if you're not happy, what are you? What does it take to be happy? In our North American culture, there's a lot that does not make sense, amen? I don't think I'm alone. And I think I can uh, safely suggest that we're in a culture war where many are left questioning whether the opinions they held since childhood are true, where morality is contextually determined, where we have to navigate a world that is shifting and unpredictable and it's chaotic, it's strange, it's broken. Brokenness comes in many forms and in many arenas, right? Personally, culture, community, nations. But today I want to invite you on a journey with me that I hope and pray will bring you to a place where brokenness in whatever form becomes an invitation to you. That when we are overwhelmed and overcome by the swirling strangeness of uncertainty, in our world or in our personal lives, we would accept the invitation from Christ to live beyond the day that we are in. The Bible has several definitions of brokenness. 
There's a brokenness before God, a brokenness of spirit, brokenness as a result of God's judgment, both individually and as a nation, a brokenness of heart. There is self-induced brokenness, such as I experienced, and brokenness as an innocent victim. As I studied the word brokenness in the context, I did learn some things in Bible college. <laughs> as I said, that was a joke. Look alive, people, look alive. <laughs> As I studied the word brokenness in the context of Psalm 51:17, I learned that it is a verb in the Hebrew language. It is the word nephal. The concise dictionary of the words in the Greek Testament and Hebrew Bible tell me that it means a fracture, ruin, affliction, breach, breaking, broken, bruised, crashing, destruction, hurt, and vexation. The Strong's Concordance reference number given to this word is number 7665. I just said that, so you know I did that. Homework. The Strong's Concordance provides an exhaustive indexing of every appearance of every word in the Bible. In this concordance, brokenness is described as to shatter, smash, break, to be weakened or destroyed in spirit. The cross-reference scriptures that I considered when Researching Psalm 51:17 all pointed to that same concordance number. And you know what I concluded after all my study? Broken is broken. Broken doesn't get any more broken when it's broken. So I've taken some liberty here in that I'm not just going to focus on Psalm 51:17. I want to draw on the idea of brokenness in scripture such that we are directed to God who meets us in our brokenness. And to do that, I'm going to share with you three stories from Scripture. The first one is a brokenness of sin. It is the story of David. And I know you all are familiar with this one. But walk with me on this journey. Did you know that Psalm 51 was written after the prophet Nathan confronted David? In 2 Samuel 11, the story of David's uh, sin of adultery with Bathsheba unfolds. At a time when kings go out to battle, David stayed at home in Jerusalem. Guess what? He wasn't where he should be. Hmm. One evening while walking around on the rooftop of his house, David sees Bathsheba bathing and notices, hmm, that girl's beautiful. So even though David knew that she was the wife of Uriah, his faithful servant, his warrior, one of his mighty men, he took Bathsheba and he lay with her. Bathsheba finds out that she is pregnant, sends word to David, so David mm -hmm, devises a plan. Yep, we're going to cover this thing up. So he orders Uriah to come home to Jerusalem with a report on this, you know, the state of the war. Yeah, I need a report. Of course, his hope is that he will go home to his wife and the cover-up can happen. But faithful Uriah doesn't do that. No, he goes and sleeps with the servants at the door of the king's house. And when he's questioned by David, Uriah says, Oh, I could not in all good conscience go and uh, home and be with my wife when we're at war. And all of the soldiers are sleeping out in the open. I cannot do that. Plan B. Here comes plan B. So David says, Okay, Uriah, you stay another day. Come on over. And, of course, his plan is to get him seriously drunk, so he'll go home to his wife. But does that happen? It does not. Again, faithful Uriah 
goes and he sleeps with David's servants at the door of the king's house. So here comes plan C. Y'all, this is just getting messier and messier, is it not? Cover up after cover up, it just gets messy. David writes a letter to Joab, the commander of the army, and he sends the same letter with Uriah back to the battlefield. Hmm, nice, huh? Here's your death warrant, take it. The letter, in the letter rather, Joab is instructed to send Uriah to the front line where the fiercest of battle is being fought and then to withdraw from him. Let him hang, let him die, let him get struck down. This was David's plan and it happened. And what David did was evil in the sight of God. So herein the Lord sends Nathan the prophet to David to confront him with his sin. And David is faced with the truth and the reality of what he has done. Psalm 51 is David's confession and his prayer for forgiveness. Oh, those words, the sacrifice of God, our broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart of God you do not despise. David knew that God did not simply desire an animal sacrifice from him. Good heavens, he could have had a thousand rams to make atonement for his sin. But he knew that, that God had no delight in burnt offerings in and of themselves. God looked at the heart. What God wanted was a humbled and crushed heart, a heart fully repentant for his sins. If we were to read from the beginning of Psalm 51, we would see that David begins his poem reminding himself of God's loving kindness and his compassion. And in verse 6, David acknowledges that God desires truth in the innermost being. He trusted that God would make him to know wisdom and that once he was forgiven, that God would cause him to hear joy and gladness once again. And if we follow through in that story, we know from 2 Samuel 12, 13, that God forgave David, and although David faced the consequences of his sin, he went on to rule the kingdom with a humbled heart, a heart after God. Sin. Sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59, 1-2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. But if we will listen, as God did for David, he will challenge us with the truth of our sin, and he will meet us there with the truth of his freedom from sin. He does not meet us with condemnation, but with an invitation. God calls us closer. He calls us to repent so that he can heal us, so that he can transform us into his image. And it is by his power that we can rise above our sin, our poor choices, our self-serving ways to know who and whose we are. David had lost sight of who he was. His identity is called chosen, a child of God. God does not despise us when we sin. Hear that. Someone needs to hear that. He's not disappointed in us. There's a hole here. I'll tell you what he is, though. God is broken for us. He wants us to flourish, not die. He loves us and he cares so much for us that he will not leave us in our sin. He will not. And if we listen... We will hear his invitation to more in him and through him. Understand this. In our brokenness of sin, 
God invites us closer. Our next story is the story of Lazarus, and it is about the brokenness of heart. This story begins in John chapter 11, verses 1 to 44. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus and a brother to Mary and to Martha. We know from other scriptures that Jesus enjoyed their company and their hospitality. One day, Lazarus is sick. He's very, very ill. So sick that the sisters send a messenger to Jesus to tell him that his friend, the one that he loves, is sick. This messenger shows up to where Jesus is ministering and requests that Jesus come immediately to the house of Lazarus. Now we know from scripture that Lazarus lived in a nearby town called Bethany, about two hours, or two miles rather, southeast of Jerusalem. Jesus' response to their plea to come was this. This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And having said this, he did not rush to the aid of his friend, but instead he delayed his departure by two days. Does that make sense to you? Observe with me, verse 5. It states, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. But the very next verse says, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Huh? He loved them, but let's let them die, and then we'll go? do you guys wrestle with scripture like this? I do. What? And then scripture goes on to tell us that by the time Jesus and the disciples arrived outside of Bethany, Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. How could this be love? Ahead of Jesus' arrival with his disciples, many people had gathered to console Mary and Martha. Both Mary and Martha had gone to Jesus at separate times to say, Lord, if you had been there, Lazarus would not have died. Their hearts were utterly broken. Can you hear it with me? If you had been there. They knew that Jesus could have healed their brother. In Jesus' encounter with Martha, we see in verse 25, Jesus challenged her saying, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha responded, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. That's what she said. Now, when Mary left suddenly to find Jesus, who was just outside the village, the other people followed her. They were thinking, no, she's going to the tomb. But in fact, she went to Jesus. And when she got there, she wept. And all the people that followed her, which was a lot, wept. And Jesus wept. This same Jesus who opened the eyes of the blind, the one who had just told his disciples that this sickness would not end in death, Jesus, the one who reminded Martha that he is the resurrection and he is the life, wept with them. Why? I don't believe it was over the death of a Lazarus. I don't. Jesus wept over the lost he came to save, over the very many present who had heard and seen and not believed. Jesus had every intention of revealing himself to them for the glory of God. His greatest act of love in that moment was to display his power as the resurrection and the life and for this reason, Jesus delayed. 
And for this reason, Jesus wept. Remove the stone, he says. And then Jesus says, thanking God that he has heard, it is because of the people that I have said it, so that. Pay attention to the words, so that in scripture. There's a treasure trove of things to understand and learn behind those two words. He says, so that they believe that you sent me. And Lazarus came out of the tomb fully alive. Sickness, betrayal, disappointment, misunderstanding, loss, dead dreams, unjustly accused. All of these are heartaches that you and I can experience. Brokenness. And it is so difficult not to say along with Martha and Mary, if only you had answered me when I wanted you to, if only you had healed or brought justice or restored, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and it's hard. There's doubting and brokenness. There's anger in brokenness. Grief, if only. Maybe the answer to your prayer is no. Maybe it is not yet. But as in the story of Lazarus, may I encourage you to see that God invites you to trust his ultimate goodness. He has a plan. He is in control. He is absolutely faithful. He is the resurrection and the life, and he will bring you out of your tomb of darkness. Hear me? He will bring you out. And know this, when God seems to be doing absolutely nothing, he is doing more than you could ever think or imagine. This is our God. And so may I encourage you in whatever situation you are in to say yes to the invitation that David had penned. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. In our brokenness of heart, God invites us to trust his goodness. Our third and final story is the story of Christ's brokenness. Oh, let me clarify that he's not broken, <laughs> but his body was broken for us. As we heard in the story of Lazarus, Jesus wept over us. We see throughout scripture instances where Jesus wept, where he was moved with compassion, and to the very end of his life where he wept teardrops of blood for the brokenness of the world and for the breaking he was about to experience on our behalf. I imagine Jesus knew exactly what was about to unfold. He was going to be betrayed, abandoned, unjustly accused, tortured, humiliated, and shamefully crucified for us. And he was innocent. There was no sin in him. He had done nothing wrong. Let that sit with you. He was innocent. But this was not the weight that brought the tears of blood. It was the weight of the sin of the world that broke his heart. It has been said that the greatest price ever paid in the history of the universe was paid by God. It cost him everything. Fleming Rutledge describes it this way. We did not deserve God's ultimate sacrifice but God paid it out of his vast storehouse of unconditional love. 
The tears of Jesus are wrung out of God's inmost heart of yearning compassion. The Messiah weeps for the sin that brings him to Jerusalem to die for her redemption. It is our complicity in sin that brings him there. It is our sin that he bears away from us like the scapegoat going into the wilderness. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus, on the cross, exposed, naked, dehumanized, pouring out his life, sowing his life in darkness, facing evil, Jesus, upon the cross, identified with the suffering of the innocent victims. And yes, he also identified with their torturers. He identified with our pain, and he identified with our sin. And all the while, God was acting. Through Jesus, death was conquered. Eternal life was gained. We were made right with God and promised an abundant life empowered by Holy Spirit. God provided peace, reconciling us to himself, a holy God, through the cross. See, when Jesus looks at us, he sees us. He sees a person that he loves. Jesus sees us in the midst of our brokenness, in our weakness, <laughs> our pain, our pretensions, our vulnerability, our masks, our self-serving actions, and he loves us. He went to the cross for us. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us so much that he died for you and for me. The brokenness of Christ is an invitation to love beyond ourselves. There is a uh, Japanese legend from the 15th century called Kintsugi. Legend has it that a mighty shogun warrior broke his favorite tea bowl and sent it away for repairs. And when this tea bowl got sent back to him, he was not happy with the repair job. So he sent it to a craftsman for an elegant solution. And this craftsman, he mixed the resin with gold and mended every crack in that bowl. And when that tea bowl was returned to the shogun, there were streaks of gold throughout the whole bowl, telling its story and adding to the value and the beauty of the bowl. The bowl was beautiful in its imperfections, something to celebrate and not hide. Listen with me to these next few scriptures. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord dwells with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Jesus declared himself the fulfillment of Isaiah 61.1. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Your brokenness, my brokenness, in the hands of Jesus is a conduit of beauty, a testimony to the healing power of Jesus and to the glory of God. Jesus said to us, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That is a promise. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The invitation to our brokenness is this. 
Jesus invites us to bring our brokenness to the cross. Every one of us is broken in some way or another. None of us have it all together. None of us are beyond or better than bringing our brokenness to the cross. This is something that we get to do and we will need to do continually. God gave his only son as an answer to the brokenness of our world. Fleming Rutledge describes God's power as a way of power in humility, power in sacrifice, power in nonviolence, power in self-emptying love. This is the way of the cross. This is the overcoming power of love. This is the way of living beyond ourselves and living beyond our brokenness. Will we answer the invitation of God to come closer to him in our brokenness? To trust his goodness with our brokenness? To surrender our brokenness to his healing love and for his glory? You and I are called for such a time as this. You and I are present in this day, in this time in history, for a reason. Will you allow your brokenness to compel you to love so that we can weep with those who weep, we can bear one another's burdens, we can serve one another in love, we can walk humbly before our God, show mercy and kindness, be generous, forgive, let go of offenses, Fences separate. Let him go. Put on love, which is a perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is the way of love. That's it. God is not doing nothing. I know that's terrible English. But he's not doing nothing with your brokenness, however you have acquired it or experienced it. God is at work. He hears the cries of your suffering, of your confusion, of your distress. And in those dark seasons of your life, know that God is going to deliver on his promise. There is a happy morning. There is. There is resurrection life. Jesus rose from the dead to give us life eternal. The life here is not all there is. This is our walking through place. This is not it. And the story of the cross is a story that we can be shaped by. We are called to live beyond ourselves, to live selflessly in a world where life is all about me. And in this broken world of confusion, where in our pursuit of happiness, we strive to put on a happy face, to power through, to mask our pain, Jesus is saying, come to me. There's another way. There's another way. We cannot avoid brokenness or suffering or pain or disillusionment. What we can do is embrace it for what it is, and we can take it to the cross. And there the love and the goodness of God is going to take that brokenness. And in those cracked and broken places, he's going to fill us with his overcoming power of the Holy Spirit. He's going to enable us to live the way of love. That broken vessel that's you and that's me, in the hands of Christ, we are those vessels of beauty with all our gold cracks 
shining brilliantly in a world that wants perfection. Would you take your brokenness to the cross with me? Because Jesus will meet us there. Will you pray with me? Jesus, how we love you. There is nothing impossible for you. Nothing is too difficult. Everything is possible with you. Would you grant us the grace to forgive ourselves and to humble ourselves before you that we would be healed? Would you enable us by the power of your Holy Spirit to walk according to your word, bring glory to your name in a world that desperately, desperately needs your love? Oh, how we need you, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill us to the uttermost. There's no other way to live. There's no other way. Praise your name. As we close, I want to give you an invitation and an opportunity to come forward to prayer. I've asked the prayer team if you'd come now. Let me remind you, someone needs to hear that brokenness is not a shameful thing. Jesus does not despise you. You're not broken beyond repair. But God is inviting you to allow your brokenness to be a conduit of his grace and mercy to this world. Thank you for joining us today on Journey Church Podcast. For more information about our ministry, visit myjourney.church.